0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. I uh, would love for you to open your Bibles now to Matthew five thirty-eight to 42. <clears throat> we are reaching the peak uh, of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of its ethical demands. This paragraph, uh, once you have the Bible open, you'll see this paragraph obviously uh, goes together with the next paragraph. And together, they represent, you might say, the twin peaks, the, the uh, highest summit in terms of the ethical demands of the Sermon on the Mount, I've heard this section of the Sermon on the Mount uh, described both uh, in reverential terms and in resentful terms. Uh, certainly, I think you have to revere this portion of, of Scripture. This is this is high and heady stuff. This is uh, this is the the brilliance of of Christianity. This is the distinctive. You know, uh, I think you trying to remember now who it was that did this, uh, but made a, oh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis made a chart with five uh, columns in it where he took the ethical teaching of all the, the world's major religions and he compared them. And uh, he, he did this to demonstrate two things. Number one, there's a ton of overlap between the ethical demands of, of all the major world religions. Many of us don't know that, uh, but there is. And by the way, that's concerning because we are now the first culture that is attempting to maintain some sense of morality without any kind of religious or spiritual uh, foundation. Let me know how that turns out. Um, but there's a ton of overlap, about 70% overlap between the ethical teachings of the five five major religions, but there are a number of things that Christianity says that no other world religion says. So it's kind of like if you put the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount, the mountain of Christian ethics, and then you line up all these other mountains, there's a sense in in which they they overlap the pattern somewhat, but they all tap out before you get here. We're, We're getting into rarefied air here in these next couple of paragraphs. Uh, so, th- this is pretty pretty special stuff. Now, I just want to acknowledge, you know, having taught through this before, having, having read these kind of verses before, having had these kind of conversations before, uh, that some of you are are going to cross your arms, and, and you're going to have sour facial expressions, and, and I'm going to be able to read your thoughts. All right? I, I can hear it loud and clear. You're saying, okay, Jesus boy, uh, back in the box with you and your nonsense, okay? Uh, you've, you've crossed a line into utter insanity. Uh, I was with you last week on telling the truth. I was with you, you know, the week before on, on marriage and divorce. I can see that. But uh, you have crossed a line now into absolute insanity. This is airy fairy, uh, willy nilly nonsense. Uh, you, you can't pull this off. You could never build a society with this kind of stuff. This cuts completely against the grain of, of human nature. And of course, it, it does. And I, I want to give you permission to spot that, but I also just want to say, I hope you understand that I don't get up here on a Sunday morning and just share some thoughts that flow directly out of my per, uh, particular nature. Uh, be thankful that that's not what happens up here. Uh, this this cuts across my nature as well, uh, very much so. Uh, I think by, by personality and natural temperament, I'm a bit of a counterpuncher. Um, I, I don't recall ever starting a fight as a kid, but I recall not walking away from very many. Uh, my poor mom... One, one morning when I was 10 years old, my brother's six years older than me, right? So you get an older brother, you develop certain behavioral abnormalities. <laughs> He's six years older than me. So when my brother was 16 and I was 10, we were sitting at the breakfast table one morning, and uh, my mom was over at the stove making, making breakfast, and my brother had his eyes on my mom, and he kept stabbing me with his fork. And every time mom would turn around, because I you know, mom would turn around, and he'd be like, what? I didn't do anything. Classic older brother line, you know, how do you see through that magic? But the thing is, I noticed that his eyes were on mom, which is a dangerous thing to do. And my eyes were on the glass peanut butter jar on the table in front of me. Do you remember when the peanut butter jars were glass? I'm probably the reason they're not anymore, because I picked up the glass peanut butter jar, hit him in the head, and knocked him unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm not commending this, okay? I'm just telling the truth, right? Last week's sermon. And it didn't work out for me very well, I must tell you anyway, uh, because he woke up, I ran for my life, and I think I still have the fork tracks on my back (laughs) to illustrate the danger of the escalating blood feud, okay? I share that just to say, listen, this does not, this cuts across the grain for me, too, Um, But the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus saying, hey, you know, check in with your natural wiring and run with that. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, I'm going to teach you how to live a whole different way. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, this is the path, walk ye in it, all right? So I say all that just because I I know what your face is going to look like in about five minutes, all right? But stick with me, don't tap out. Let's go the whole way and let's believe in what God's people are capable of because of the resources that God has provided to us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's pray. Pastor Matt mentioned that it's Pentecost Sunday. Um, Pentecost Sunday is a great Sunday to be reminded that we can't do anything Jesus tells us to do without the help of the Holy Spirit. Will you say amen to that? Amen. amen. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're coming again uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. And every week, Lord, it feels like we've gone up another thousand meters and uh, this week, the air is very thin, and we all f- are going to feel like tapping out, and we're going to need the breath of the Holy Spirit in our lungs to keep going. So Lord, I just pray for that. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd help us to hear what Jesus is saying and, and to note what he's not saying, uh, but to to also believe that by the grace that, that you supply, we can approach this Standard, by one degree of glory to the next. For this is the work of the Spirit in us. And Father, today we give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. And we give you thanks for that appropriately in Jesus' name. <clears throat> All right, Here now the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of the Lord. This is Jesus' teaching. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm just going to take a quick look at your faces. I know what you're thinking. As I said, this is, this is Jesus raising the bar yet again. This is the summit of the ethical portion of the Sermon on the Mount. But if Jesus said this, as strange as it sounds to us, as much as it feels like it cuts across the grain, we need to work hard to understand what Jesus is saying and why he is saying it. And so to make our way uh, there this morning, I'm going to work our, our way or draw your attention to three different questions. First of all, we're going to ask, what was wrong with the old bar, right? In each of these, these middle sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, right? I got your old bar right here. And then he's, he's raising it up here. So what was wrong with the old bar? Question one. Where did Jesus put the new bar? Question two. And how in the world are we ever going to achieve or, or even approach this lofty standard. All right, first of all then, what was wrong with the old bar? Remember, this is antithetical teaching, meaning Jesus is contrasting the way of the kingdom, his way, with the accepted wisdom of the culture. So he says again and again, you have heard that it's said, right? This is what everybody's saying, right? He acknowledges the, the accepted wisdom. You have heard it said, but I say, Now, when he goes on to talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, of course, he's quoting from the Old Testament law. You can find that phrase in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. The problem was that in Jesus' day, the people had turned that legal principle into a guide for personal behavior, and it was never intended to function that way. So that's the first problem Jesus had with the old bar. They had transformed a judicial principle into a personal principle. If you go back and read those Old Testament passages, it's very clear that God, through Moses, was giving commands for the judges of Israel. He's saying, make sure that the punishment fits the crime. That's the legal principle known as lex talionis, Uh, Lex Talionis literally means the law of the tooth. And it is, as a legal principle, it continues to be taught in law schools all around the world. Every once in a while, there's an advantage to having taken a little bit of Latin in high school, maybe. I'm sure some of you of a certain age uh, took a little bit of Latin. Every once in a while, do you notice that the, uh, the title of a police show, like one of those legal dramas, is Lex Talionis? I've seen multiple television shows that have that as as the title, lex talionis, law of the tooth. It's the principle of proportionate justice. And proportionate justice is a foundation stone of any civilized country in the world. You know that because what do you say about one of those countries where they cut off people's hands for stealing a loaf of bread? What do we say about a country like that? We say it is uncivilized. It's uncivilized because they don't know about lex talionis. They don't know about the principle of proportionate justice. So that's what the Old Testament law was about. But in Jesus' day, people had taken that not as a principle for the court system, but rather as a guide for personal behavior. Right? They were saying, you slapped me in the face, so now I get to slap you in the face. They had turned a principle of justice into permission for personal revenge. Which leads us to the second thing they got wrong in terms of where they placed the old bar. They were treating an outer limit as if it were an aspirational target. The fundamental problem with the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day is that they did not understand the function, the purpose, the function of the law. The law was given by God to restrain sin. It was an outer limit. It was a minimum standard. We've talked about this a few times now, right? Uh, A few weeks ago when we were talking about lust, we talked about how Jesus sets the bar for his people significantly higher than the outer boundary of the law. He says, you have heard it said do not commit adultery, but I say to you, and then he sets the bar significantly higher. Why is that? Well, because not having sex with your neighbor's wife should not be your marriage goal, right? That's a minimum standard. You know that, you know that um, I love this new tradition at weddings. Uh, I, I do a lot of weddings, usually between you know, two, three, uh, on a low summer, eight, nine, 10 on a high summer. So I can see all the new traditions, which is great. There's a new tradition that I like where at the wedding, they put out a little book where the, all the guests are encouraged to put in a little marriage advice. Have you seen that? And so you get all kinds of nice, neat things in there. Never go to bed angry. Uh, always have a date night. Um, I don't know, whatever. You know what I've never seen in those books? I've never seen anyone give the advice, don't have sex with your neighbor's wife. <laughs> you, do, do you know why? Because that bar is too low. That's that's not an aspirational target. That is a minimum standard, right? And so so Jesus is coming along saying, guys, you've taken an outer limit and you're treating it as a guide for how to treat other people. That's not a good bar. The people of God are gonna do better than that. Now, to be clear, in this passage, Jesus, once again, is not being an innovator. He's being a reformer. Taking your own revenge, taking the law into your own hands, was always forbidden to the people of God, even the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19, 18, the Bible says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God always expected more from the covenant people than the minimum standard suggested by the law. The cultural leaders in Jesus' day missed the mark because they misunderstood, they ignored the original context for this law, and they misunderstood its original purpose. So that's what was wrong with the old bar. Now, where did Jesus put the new bar? That's the second question we need to take a look at. The first thing we see is that Jesus forbids his disciples from resisting or retaliating in the face of personal insult or perceived injustice. Now, that's a mouthful. I feel like that's a John Piper-esque first point, Um, but it needs to be wordy because one of the main reasons that people reject this teaching as unrealistic is because they actually aren't careful to notice what Jesus says and what Jesus doesn't say. So let's slow down and make sure we have our facts straight. In contrast to the standards of the day, Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil, But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, so he gives three examples or three illustrations to make this point. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. All right, let's walk through that. Jesus says, first of all, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, notice that he doesn't say, if someone comes at you with a knife, stand there and let him stab you. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, if someone is trying to murder your your wife and your, your kids, step aside, let them go ahead and do that. No, he doesn't, doesn't say that at all. And but yet, those are the sorts of ridiculous scenarios that are often brought forward as an attempt to make this passage look absurd. But Jesus isn't speaking about any of those things. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. In the Eastern world, a slap on the right cheek was a known uh, cultural gesture. It was a way of communicating gross public insult. A slap on the right cheek is not how you try to kill someone. A slap on the right cheek in that culture is how you insult and revile someone. And, and so this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about an insult directed at you, not an assault directed at someone else. So we mustn't get distracted by those kind of logical non sequiturs. He's not talking about that. What Jesus is saying in straightforward terms is when someone insults you, Don't insult them back. And it goes on to say, if someone is trying to take your property, that's what the second one was about. Don't resist them. If someone is treating you unfairly, that was the third illustration, don't make a big fuss about it. What Jesus is saying here is don't use force or expend emotional energy protecting your personal dignity, your personal property, or your personal rights. So this text may mean something slightly different than you thought it meant coming in, but I'm guessing that it's still lofty enough to make many people in the room want to tap out. D.A. Carson pulls no punches here. He says, the legalistic mentality which dwells on retaliation and so-called fairness makes much of one's rights. Uh, what Jesus is saying in these verses more than anything else is that his followers have no rights. You want to be my follower, Jesus says? Well, to be my follower, you have to admit that you are a rebel, that you have betrayed God, that you are a sinner, that you stand condemned, that you deserve the death penalty. So exactly what rights do you think you have in that position? You have none. You have only the obligation to serve and obey the one who has redeemed you. That's the frame of reference from which Jesus offers these seemingly impossible standards. Now, we need to be clear once again that Jesus is not speaking here to the state. He's speaking to private individuals. He's speaking to his followers. That is to say, he does not intend this to represent any kind of restriction upon the actions of of the state. And certainly the apostles did not understand him as saying that because Paul in Romans 13 could say about the king or the magistrate that he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, according to the apostles, it's good when the magistrate executes justice on the evildoer. It's good for the magistrate, for the government to act as an avenger on behalf of those who have been wronged. It is good for the state to do that. That's, That's their responsibility. It's their responsibility to retrieve your stolen item. It's their responsibility to safeguard your rights to property. It's their responsibility to protect your lives and human dignity, and they will be judged by God in terms of how good or how poor a job They do it that. But your responsibility as a disciple is to represent Jesus Christ. The one who was silent before his accusers. The one who was reviled and did not revile in return. The one who, as he was being nailed unjustly to a Roman cross, stopped and prayed and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the new bar, right? Jesus forbids his disciples from resisting or retaliating against those who would insult them, steal from them, or treat them unfairly. But there's there's more. In verse 42, we discover that Jesus requires his disciples to be open-handed, generous, and loving in their personal relationships. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, is, just I'm sure you've all, many of you have read the Sermon on the Mount many times. Every time you come to that verse, don't you think it's a little bit out of place? Like we were talking about retaliation, you know, not punching people back, not insulting people back, not you know playing tit for tat, and now all of a sudden we're talking about generosity. What's how does that go? Feels a bit out of place, doesn't it? And yet it is not. Jesus is saying here that in the same way that he will not tolerate a sort of legalistic, tit-for-tat, measured-out attitude with respect to personal recompense, neither will he accept that attitude when it comes to the positive duties and obligations that his followers owe their fellow man. He's saying, I don't want you to give people what they are owed, negatively or positively. I want you to give People more than they could ever hope to ask for or receive. Because once again, you are out in the world representing me. So listen, again, bottom line here. Here's the bottom line. The contrast, remember this is antithetical teaching. The contrast here is between the way of legalism and the way of love. The way of legalism is asking What is the minimum I am required to do? Or what is the minimum that I am required to give? Right, Those two questions are opposite sides of the same legalism coin. You know, as a pastor, I'm always nervous when I get the email. Brother Rob and I were just chatting about uh, new folks coming in. At at some point, a high percentage of, of newcomers will send me the email which will say something along these lines. Pastor, am I required to tithe as a New Testament believer? There's really no good way to answer that question because the answer is I'm worried about you for asking that question in the first place. The, the, literally, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that unsaved, non-Christ-following people are always looking for limits and loopholes Whereas saved people are always living by the law of love. That's, I mean, that's the Sermon on the Mountain in a nutshell. So as followers of Jesus typically, followers of Jesus typically are not asking, do I have to give such and such an amount? Rather, followers of Jesus are supposed to be asking, How much can I give before I'm actually being unloving to my spouse and to my children? Or, or how much. Can I give in love before I'm being unloving to somebody else? That's a legitimately Christian question because love is the only limit that the followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to acknowledge. And once you understand that, it actually helps you with some of the gotcha questions, again, that try to come at this part of the passage in order to present it as absurd. Right? People will come up and say, you know, if you, if you actually believe in this, they'll come up to you and they say, what, come on. Are you saying that we should give money to every homeless person on the street who asks us? You know darn well, many of them are gonna use it for drugs. You ever been asked that question? I have. Have you ever asked that question? Jesus says, give, give, to, give to those who ask for you. Jesus, I'm not sure that's a realistic life plan. But but again, what we're after here is not in sensitive absoluteness in our application. What we're after here is an understanding of the principle. And the principle is that Christians are not to be guided by legalism in their personal relationships. Rather, they are to be guided by love. So the Christian is supposed to be asking, would it be loving for me to give this money to this person directly? Or would it be more loving for me to give this money to a rehab center or to a food bank? Those are love questions, as opposed to legalism questions. But the principle remains, the followers of Jesus are required to be open-handed, generous, and loving in their personal relationships. That is the core and essence of this passage, and nobody sums it up any better or any more succinctly than C.H. Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, our loving king would have private dealings ruled by the spirit of love and not by the rule of law. Isn't that good? That's it in a nutshell. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Understanding a passage is marvelous. Understanding why the bar shouldn't be here, but rather it should be. That's wonderful, very exciting. Here's the million-dollar question. How are we going to achieve or even approach this lofty standard? First and most important thing we need to say is this. We do that, we approach, we make progress against the standard, as we do against all standards, but this one, most obviously, by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this is something you can only do. This is something you would only aspire to do if you've been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Remember, this is not a sermon about how to get saved. This is a sermon about how saved people live, how saved people can live, because the gospel is more than an idea. It is an idea with power embedded inside of it. And one of the things that we don't understand very well in the Western world, and I would say in the modern day church in particular, is that beliefs are powerful. What you believe is eventually, how you will behave. And so achieving this standard begins, of course, in your heart and in your mind. It begins with believing who the gospel says you are and believing what the gospel says about what God has done in Christ to secure your salvation. Let me walk you through that. Let's start with the first one. What, is it, what, what do I mean when I say believing what the gospel says about who you are? Well, well what does the gospel say about you? What does the gospel say about men and women? What does the gospel say about all human beings? According to the gospel, the gospel says that all human beings, everyone in this room is a, a condemned and convicted rebel before the king of kings. You're a betrayer. You were supposed to be God's vice regent. You were supposed to be under God and over everyone else, but that wasn't good enough for you, so you rebelled against God. You wanted to be God without reference to God. You didn't want to live your life. You didn't want to decide right and wrong by the word of God. You wanted to de- decide those things by your own eye, by your own sense of things. And by the way, you say, are you, wait a second, are you talking about Adam and Eve or are you talking about me? Yes. Yes. I'm talking about Adam and Eve, and I'm talking about every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve who's ever lived ever since. Have you ever in your mind said, well, I know the Bible says, but you know what? I'm not sure that works out in the modern world. I'm not sure that uh, that accounts for my particular circumstances. Okay, so I'm talking to you, right? Adam and Eve decided that they didn't want to decide right and evil with reference to the word of God. They wanted to do that work for themselves. They wanted to be God without reference to God. That's, That's who the gospel says you are. It says you started off very high. You fell very low. And from that place, you stand condemned. You stand under a just sentence of condemnation. That's, that's what the Bible says. Right, we all love, and you say, Pastor, this is pretty heavy. Yep, We all, where's my John 3.16, right? We all love John 3.16 and 17, but we almost never quote John 3.18. Have you noticed that? Here's what John 3.18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You seeing that? Funny how they put like the hardest verse in the Bible right next to the nicest verse in the Bible, isn't it? What they're basically saying is, you know, if you're not in Christ, isn't it wonderful to be in Christ? Isn't it wonderful? If you're not in Christ, the Bible says you're condemned already, which means you're, you start condemned. That's how you woke up in the morning. But, but then if you come to Christ, then you're forgiven. You hearing that? Every human being you know who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, is already condemned for a capital crime. That, that's what the Bible says about human beings. So, so here's, here's the point. Remember I said that believing the gospel helps you live this out? Here's the point. If that is true, what the gospel says, if that is true, then every human being you know is already facing the death penalty. So why in the world would you waste any time or energy trying to add a $5 fine for them to talk about on Judgment Day. Trying to add $5 fines to people who already face the death penalty is the definition of waste of time. It's also petty. Let it go. Not only is it petty, it is dangerous. Because actually Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in multiple places says that if we fail to forgive, it actually reveals that we have not understood the gospel. Do you understand that all all these, we've been talking a lot about raising the bar, raising the bar. And remember, it's so important to understand that we're not, these are not bars you have to jump over in order to earn salvation. Thank goodness that Christianity is not a high school track meet. Uh, by the way, after service, you can come up, I have a giant scar on, inside my head that goes right from where my hair, it used to be covered by my hair, it's like the Lord is revealing my shame, slowly but surely, I have this beautiful scar up in my hairline there, uh, because in, uh, in high school, I was, uh, competed in track and field in high jump, which for a five 5'10", 195 pound guy in high school, was probably not a good choice. And uh, trying to go up over the bar, I cranked my head on the upright and had to go to the high. That's, by the way, a great way to avoid showing your inability at a high jump if you're looking for tips on life. <laughs> but this is a very high bar. Thank goodness Christianity is not a high school track meet where we've got to get over this bar in order to make it into the kingdom. That's not how these bars function. These bars are here, first of all, as aspirational targets. That's mostly what we've been talking about over the course of this series. Right, We see this stuff and then by the grace that God supplies, we acknowledge these standards and we move against them. But they're also here as a a mercy, they're here as a test of faith. Because if you see this bar and you resent it and reject it, what that reveals is that you don't understand the gospel. See again, the Bible takes very seriously that connection between belief and behavior. We don't. We have different categories. We're like, oh, I believe wonderful things, and yes, and I behave in terrible ways, and don't talk to me about that. The Bible says, I don't think that's true. And you say, oh, no, trust me, it's true. No, it isn't. Because if you are behaving in terrible ways, it actually means you don't believe wonderful things. This is a guaranteed connection, according to the Bible. It is certainly treated as such. That that as these gospel pieces, as you go, like, okay, wait, so like I was condemned of a capital crime. I received mercy. Wow. If that truth has really sunk in, then you don't go from that to saying, I need to find people who owe me $5 so that I can run them through the ringer and, 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 you know, hold them over a barrel. No, no, no. You, if, if you get the gospel, who you were, what God has done in Christ for you, you spend the rest of your life basically just sitting in a pool of gratitude and mercy. And so the Bible says if you don't, if you continue to be ungrateful, and if you continue to be harsh and legalistic in your treatment of other people, what that reveals is that you are not saved, that you have never actually understood the gospel. Jesus treated that connection as definitive and reliable. So that's why, he, remember he told us the, the parable of the unmerciful servant? And you remember the story of the unmerciful servant? A un, guy, a uh, steward of a rich guy, um, has some bad business deals, ends up owing the master billions of dollars, can't pay. So he's facing, uh, he's going to have his whole family sold into slavery, he's going to be thrown into debtor's prison. And he just throws himself on the mercy of the master. He says, I can't pay. I've uh, I've made the mistakes. I can't pay. There's no chance of me paying. Oh, have mercy on me. And the master does. He he waives the debt. And then, of course, you know in the story, the unmerciful servant gets up, and he goes and finds a guy who owes him 100 bucks. And he beats him up, and he throws him into debtor's prison. He said, you're not getting out until you pay me the whole sum. And the story gets back to the master, and the master summons the original servant. And he says, how dare you? I forgave you an, a massive debt. Should you not have had, literally, this is the punchline, should you not have had mercy on the one who owed you? And, and Jesus tells that story and goes on to say, basically, that's the conversation you'll be having with God on Judgment Day if you don't forgive other people from your heart. And, and Jesus, this is a big deal for Jesus. He not only said that there, he says that in the Sermon on the Mount after the, bit, after the teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember that? He says, Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. How much time do you spend trying to explain that away? Oh, I'm sure Jesus, he always talked in hyperbole and blah, blah, blah. If you do not here it is, straightforward, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your. Why would Jesus say that? Because again, in the mind of the Bible, in the mind of God, in the mind of Jesus. There is a fixed and reliable equation here between belief and behavior. If you can't forgive people the $5 fine, the the minor infractions against you relative to your massive debt of obligation toward God, well, I guess that proves you don't understand the gospel. If you don't understand the gospel, you're not a person of faith, ergo, you're not saved, ergo, God does not forgive you your sins on judgment day. So not only is it petty to have this kind of attitude, to go around assigning $5 fines to people living under a a death sentence, not only is it petty, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it makes a very compelling case to the judge of the universe that you've never understood or embraced the gospel. So, There is a connection here. That was negative. Here's the positive. The better you understand the gospel, the more you understand who you are and what God has done. God has taken all of your debt through faith and confession, put it on Jesus Christ on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin and you became the righteousness of God. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is the heart of the heart of the gospel. That is the great exchange. Think about that. Meditate on that. Return to that truth every time someone cuts you off and you are about to give a gesture of unforgiveness. Think about that before you assign $5 fines to those you condemn in your personal universe. Believing the gospel will get you there, my friends. The gospel is not just a set of ideas, it is power for life and godliness. All right, that's 90% of the answer. Let me, give you, let me give you 10% more. We achieve this standard, or at least we approach the standard by believing in the gospel and then also by remembering how this story actually ends. Now, I suppose this is technically an add-on point, and it will be shorter because, like I said, we've already given you 90% of the answer. But the gospel's a really big story. It's a really big story. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians actually makes the point that focusing on the end of the really big story will make it easier to achieve this particular standard. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is exasperated because the Christians in that city are actually suing each other in court over petty offenses, meaning they're doing the exact opposite of what they were told to do in the Sermon on the Mount. So Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life Paul is reminding them of how the story ends. At the end of the story, the saints will judge the world. Do you understand that? I'm not talking about Mother Teresa, right? That's how Roman Catholics talk about saints. The Bible says that all true believers are saints. And so this is the apostle Paul saying, do you not know this? Did we, were you absent this week in Sunday school? Like, do you not know that at the end of the story, the saints will judge the world? So what in the world are you doing getting so upset now about all these petty grievances? Do you not know that at the end of this story, you're going to judge the world? You are going to judge angels. Get some perspective, friends. That's what he says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 6. He says, "Why not? if this is the world, if this is the end, if this is the trajectory, why not rather suffer wrong? Can't you eat that? Why do you need closure? Can't you eat that? Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? you You understand that when all the accounts are reviewed at the end of the age, it will be you conducting the final audit. So you're not going to be out a penny. So chill out. That's what Paul says. That's my personal translation. Seeing that big picture, right? focusing in in, and zooming in on the end of that big picture can help us live better, wiser, and more graciously, more mercifully in the here and now. And then lastly, we achieve, or at least we approach this standard by focusing on the job we were commissioned to do. The Great Commission. Aren't you thankful there's a paragraph in the Bible called The Great Commission? Oh, it brings wonderful clarity about what you and I should be doing in the time between now and then. Here it is. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see that? You've got a job to do between now and the end of the age, the end of the age, at which point you will conduct the final audit over all the world under the supervision of Jesus. But in the time between now and then, you were given a job to do. And that job is pretty straightforward. Go into all the world and make disciples, right? So Jesus said, that's, that's, that's what you need to focus on. That's what you're about, right? Tell people about Jesus. Tell people how they can have their accounts squared. Make enemies into friends through the blood of the cross. That's your job now as a follower of Jesus. You're not in the justice business, friends. Listen, my friends, justice is a very low bar. Justice is a very cold standard. You've been assigned to something bigger and better than that. You're in the mercy business. You're in the redemption business. You're in the restoration business. And your law is the law of love. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is is high stuff. This is rarefied air. And, Lord, we just want to confess, this does not run with the grain of any of our personal dispositions. And yet, Lord, we believe that by the grace that you supply, as we see, as we behold, as we better understand who Jesus is, who we are, and what you have done for us in Christ, as we see those things, And as we receive help from on high, we can change. We can change. Counterpunchers can become lovers, Lord. Aggressors can become reconcilers. Lord, these things are possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we give you thanks for both of those things today. In Jesus' name, amen.